Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Kevin McKee. I'm the lead pastor here. If we've not met, I'd really like to meet you. I'll be making my way to the lobby after the service. So I'd love to shake your hand, say hello, and uh, learn a little about you. Um, I'm here today. Uh, some of you saw me here and thought, oh, Steve's not here. And that's a good thing. Uh, I get that. Uh, I joking. I had this experience, truly. Um, so uh, Steve and I work on messages together. We, we preach from the same outline. Of course, his stories are different and his delivery is different and all of that. But he was working on one and he asked to see my notes. So I gave him my notes and then he had finished up his um, uh, manuscript and sent it back to me. And at the end of the day, I was talking to my wife, Mary, and I said, I sent my sermon to Steve. He sent my sermon back to me better. And I was like, man, this is really good. So I know you guys have uh, enjoyed him. In, in terms of our transition, let me tell you what we've been doing. You know, but let me just reinforce it. Andrew Bates transitioned from our staff to be a lead pastor at Eunice, uh, First Baptist Eunice. And so we've asked Steve to sit in this spot. In February, we took time as an elder and staff and, and prayed. And what I discovered is many of you are impatient. Uh, you started asking me like on the, on the 12th, hey, what, what, what's the plan? I said, well, we're listening. Uh, and then some of you waited another week. Hey, well, well, what, well what's the plan? We've, we actually spent the time praying, um, fasting, praying, saying, Lord, what are you doing in our church? Um, uh, Andrew was here about four years before him. Um, wonderful. Uh, Hans Guger was here for about four years. I personally don't see this as a role um, for a four-year stint. I see it as a role to invest in a community and see it grow and mature and reach our city. So, it's just part of what we've been thinking. So we spent the month of February praying. The elders got away for a, a retreat and started talking with each other and, and comparing notes, if you will, on what we were hearing from the Lord. And then we came back in March and we, and we asked you guys, hey, would you just write down on a piece of paper what you feel like the Lord might be sharing with you? Many of you wrote one name, Steve. Uh, so we, we heard that. Um, but even still, we've we've gotten those. We've put them all together from both locations. Some folks are still emailing us. And we've been listening to that and considering all that the Lord is saying. Um, on top of that, there have been some focus groups, just kind of, we call them pulse checks with uh, groups from uh, the congregations here. And so we're listening to all that. Hopefully, by the end of this month, we will have uh, received all the information we need so that we can then, in, in, in April, uh, map out a, ta a plan. But in the April also has Easter, so we want to enjoy that and work on that, and so um, hopefully very soon you'll know what the plan is and how we're going to go about it. So I know it's um, it seems like um, maybe we could go quicker. We definitely could. It doesn't mean we would be better, right? Uh, it's been a wonderful experience to um, to stop and pray. I received a, an email this oh, probably at the end of the week from somebody, and it taken them. They were late. And they said, I've been praying about this. And, and just it was just beautifully written and thought through. And, um, just, and I was just so moved that folks had joined us in that process. 
So I just want to say thank you for doing that. It means the world. We want to not make a good decision. We want to make God's decision, right? And um, I realize the longer I live, uh, you know, measure twice, cut once, um, the rule I learned growing up. And it it never hurts to pause and really listen to the Lord. And so that's what we've been doing. That's what you've been doing. So thank you. Um, now we're compiling all that we've heard and discussing and praying about that, strategizing on the next steps. So that's where we are. I'm so appreciative uh, to the Lord, really, for someone like Steve um, and his gift set and, and his heart for you and for our church and uh, being a sending church. So that's really great. Um, also, um, James and Kelly Lotz last Sunday here with us is today. It went out in an email, so they're going to be in the kids area. Love for you to stop by and say hello to them before they make their next move. Um, changes. Uh, the other thing I've learned is I've uh, turned 60 over in Laos um, this year as we were over there. But one of the things I, I realized is that life doesn't stay the same. And I've been, if you've been following along with us in our Bible reading plan, you've been reading about the life of Abraham and just how faithful he is to follow the Lord and to trust the Lord. Uh, I found it really interesting that the first piece of land um, that Abraham actually had in the promised land was one he purchased to bury his wife, Sarah. And, um, and he said, you know what, we're not going to bury her back home. This is where the promise is. So I'm trusting the God of promises to lead us and guide us in his time for his glory as we pursue his vision. So that's, that's where we are. Thank you so much for praying. Continue to pray. And as Dave uh, said, you know, that song is so beautiful. It is well with my soul. Um, most Sundays, maybe every Sunday, there are people that come to church where that is not the case. They have experienced in great loss, turmoil, questions, and as a staff, we're not unaware of that. And um, my prayer is that today you would leave um, more secure in who you are in Christ, that if you don't know Jesus, that you might come to know him. But it would be great if you could leave here with greater confidence, not in how you feel, but what is true. And those are hard to, di- to differentiate sometimes because our feelings can be so powerful. Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed this prayer. God, sanctify them, meaning us, the followers, with your truth. Your word is truth. So I'm praying that God would actually speak to us from his word today. And I'd like to pause and give thanks for all he's done and is doing and then pray that he would do that. Would you pray with me? Father God, I am so grateful um, for your provision for your provision of people like Steve, people like James, to our church, to our families, to our ministry. And Lord, I pray again that you would guide us. But today, Lord, as we gather and we sit under your word, would you use it to shape us and mold us? Would you use it to mature us and grow us? I pray for those whose souls are not at rest right now, that you would... They would be able to entrust you with the burden that they have just for a moment um, as they hear your word and consider the truths that we'll see today. Lord, I pray that we would all be eager to hear what you say. Would you speak deeply to our hearts? Would you use me, Lord, to help do that? Anoint 
the preaching of your word, that it might change us as people, as a congregation, as a community of faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we're in Romans chapter 7. Uh, Romans is going to lead us up to Easter. And then on the back of end of Easter, we'll be in chapter 8. It leads us up to Easter in this regard. Um, today, we'll see our deep need for a Savior. That trying to live the Christian life in our own strength will only fail. Trying to live a righteous life without Christ's righteousness will only leave us frustrated. And so we're going to start with an odd question. Is the law, which we've been talking about since chapter 5, good? Or to put it another way, is this, you know, because that's what the Mosaic laws, you know, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, is it good? Now, how did we get to such a question? Why would we, why would we ask that question? Well, in Romans chapter 5, this great turning of the, of the book, we've established that everybody needs Jesus, everybody needs a Savior, whether they're Jew or Gentile, chapters 1, 2, 3. Chapters 4 says that provision is in Jesus, the second half of 3 and 4, and we can grab a hold of him, as it were. We can experience what he has for us by faith. And then in chapter 5 has this, this beautiful moment, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just trumpeting good news. Therefore, since we have been justified, we've been declared right with God. We have peace with God. He is not frustrated with us, not angry with us. And it's all through faith in Jesus Christ. God makes things right through Jesus. And then Paul brings up this issue in the second half of chapter 5. Well, if Jesus fixed everything, then why did we need the law? And he says the law was added to God's plan so that trespass might increase. But then he says this, but where trespass increased, grace increased all the more. Allow me to, my vertical. Hey, it's one thing to laugh with me. It's another thing to laugh at me. It's, we, I mean... <laughs> Is that lame, was it? Yeah, that's okay. Back to Romans 5, this trumpeting wonderful. Michaela's up here laughing at me if you want to know who it is. So just since <laughs> the law was added, the uh, trespass might increase. Well, if trespass increases, grace increases all the more. Well, then let's just sin so we'll have more grace. They'll bring more glory. I won't jump. And, you know. On and on and on. Well, that begs the question. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? No. Can't do that. You can't do that because you're not who you once were. You've been changed. You've been united with Jesus. He's changed you fundamentally. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back to what you're now ashamed of, he said. You're not under law. You're under grace. So he says it again in verse 15. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No. If you willingly, as a Christian, walk into sin, you make that choice, even though now as a Christian you can choose differently, well, it's going to bring shame. It's going to bring you into slavery. You don't want to do that. You've been liberated from the law. So in chapter 7, verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law? The law has no authority over someone as long as it is that person lives. They give this great analogy of a woman's husband dying, giving her freedom to remarry. And we've been freed up from our connection to the law to be connected to Christ because we died with Christ. And everything is different now. 
And then the question is, well, then, if the law isn't helpful in overcoming my sin, is it good? If it condemns me, is it good? Or to put it another way, what's the purpose of the law in the Christian's life? And that's something that many, many Christians deal with. And one thing it will never do is it will never, never will, the rules and law will never liberate us and keep us from sinning. What it will do, and it does very well, is point us to our need for Jesus. It'll point out our brokenness. And it'll drive us, hopefully, to Jesus. Because the law has the ability to get under the surface, like an MRI or an X-ray that looks under the surface of a person's skin to see what's going on inside. The law looks under the surface into the human heart and examines our thoughts and our motives. It has this kind of power. So we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, and then 14 to 25. And those two pieces explain how the law looks under the surface, how it exposes our sin, how it raises the need. So the first half explains. The second half allows us to experience it. It it writes it in very experiential language that hopefully everybody can listen to and go, yeah, I I know that experience. So I want to read just that first chunk so you can get a feel for the movement. It says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once was I, I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intending to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. So there it is. Starting back at verse 7, it says, what shall we say, right? Is the law sinful? No. I would not have known, Paul says, what it was to covet if the law hadn't told this to me. And you notice as I read that, the word I, 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 he's speaking from personal experience. And he's using past tense. So this is what happened to him in the past. As a Jewish boy, he was always around the the word, the law. So when did it come to him? When did it penetrate? I don't know if you've ever had that experience with the Bible where you read something and and it gets you. Well, that's what's happened here. It got him got him and probably right before his conversion <laughs> it got him and it, it exposed in him what he was unaware of quick show of hands how many people know what rumble strips or rumble stripes are okay a few of you yeah they're they're the little grooves cut in the highway right on either side right right in your lane they're either right there before the ditch or right there before the center line 
And they're there to help you see what you're unaware of, that indeed, while you're texting, you're veering off the road into trouble. You're going to either end up in the ditch, eat some wires, flip the car, whatever. I had a friend whose uh, parents called them from the flip car. I don't know what they were doing. I think they were dodging something. They flipped their car. They got out of their car. They got another car, and they continued on their vacation. I love that. But that's, that doesn't help my illustration. The rumble strips are to keep you from going in the ditch, are to keep you from going across the center line into what's dangerous. And Paul said, hey, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known what coveting is. And then he uses a great example, the Tenth Commandment. All the rest are just quite tangible. Do not do this behavior. I haven't lied today. Check. Have no graven images before me. I got no graven images. Check. Don't commit adultery. Haven't committed adultery. Check. Do not covet. Hmm. That one's internal. That one gets inside of us. And like all sins that start internally, I call it a sneaky sin. A sneaky sin. Because it's so easily mistaken in the early stages as admiration. Gosh, I really like that guy's new truck. I admire him so much for having it. My admiration then turns into deep desire. I really want my neighbor's truck. And then admiration turns into idolatry. I must have my neighbor's truck. And now I love, a love for an object has replaced my love for the Lord, and that's why it's in the Ten Commandments. It's, it's, a, it's a sneaky thing. It's also a gateway sin. It leads to other things. Admiration leads to lust. Oh, I was noticing. I was just noticing her God-given beauty. And the next thing I'm noticing is something else that qualifies as lust. And I've gone over the edge. Money, the love of money, great struggle in the American uh, culture because it signifies status and security. And those are the two things God says, they're mine in the Christian's life. I give you, you're my child. That's the status. And I've got you. That's the security. And Jesus would say it this way. In, in Luke's gospel, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of things he possesses. <laughs> wow. So Paul says, like rumble strips on the highway, the law exposed the sneaky gateway sin that I wouldn't even have known was inside of me, growing, and it made it made its way, it made it clear, made it very, very clear to him. Can the law help me in my spiritual life? Yes. It'll help point out when you're out of bounds. No, it cannot help you resist temptation. It cannot do it. So is the law good? Our first point is the law is good. The law is good. Paul will explain how this good thing actually does this difficult work, which will ultimately be good because it drives us to Jesus. Verse 8, but sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, the commandment didn't produce the sin, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin here is the condition that plagues humanity. It's not just a behavior, it's a condition. And it lives within us. 
and won't be removed until we have a, a new body. So we have the world around us that's broken and fallen, and we have this broken body. Uh, broken body. And when, when the commandment comes, sin seizes that opportunity. It means to grasp. It means to reach out and grab like a piece of forbidden fruit. And that's what's... But being self-aware, he now realizes, hey, I'm coveting. Before the law had kind of really gotten in there, sin had no... It had no rule in my life. It's like it was dead to me. Look at verse 9. Once I lived apart from the law. Once I lived outside of that work in my heart. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. Have you ever had that, that experience where, where there's a sin in your life and it becomes clear? You didn't know it before, Right? You didn't know that it, it was there. You didn't, you didn't know it. And then when you discovered it, you're like, oh, okay, I need to do something about that. My wife is a wonderful cook. <clears throat> She's an artist in the kitchen. She really is. Like a good artist, she does not care about the mess that she creates. Because she's creating. I'm a horrible cook. One day... Many, many years ago, early in our marriage, she was in there mashing potatoes. A little behind time, the guests were coming, and I said, hey, can I help? I immediately surmised that there's a much quicker way to mash potatoes. I mean, we have machines with blenders and things that can do this much faster. So when her back was turned, I put it into a blender, and I started blending. Those of you who cook know what's about to happen. See, I didn't know that potatoes go through a... I guess a chemical transformation. They're no longer mashy when you blend them up. They're stretchy, like string. I ruined them. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like, what happened? These were little clumps a minute ago. Now they're just long strings. And she said, and they're unedible. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. Now I know. And I also know that I'm not allowed in the kitchen to help with potatoes. <laughs> Paul was like, I didn't know, and now I do. And so he goes on in verse, um, uh, in verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For, for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the command, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. Isn't that what sin always does? It always deceives. How does it deceive? Well, let me give you two ways that happen pretty regularly. One deception is you're not that bad. That's what you tell yourself. You go out in the moral universe and you go, where's the worst person in the world? Let me compare myself to them. And I'm okay. And we're deceived because we're not okay. Or pride swells up inside of us and we go, I got this. Don't covet. I got it. And plus, who's going to know? I got it. Meanwhile, you fail at it miserably, and if you take any internal inv in, uh, investigation, you'll see that. It, it is, it, it deceives us. So the question today, is, is the law sinful? Is it good? It's explained and answered in verse 12. So then the law, the law is holy. 
It represents God's perfect standard. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Holy and righteous and good. But then there's a, a sub-question. Well, if, did it? It became death to me. How can that be good? Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? No. No. Nevertheless, in order that, and here's the purpose, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, we have a, we have a growing culture that doesn't know where the boundaries are. And sometimes we can get really uptight and fed up with them. You should know better. Well, if you'd have yelled at me like that in the kitchen when I ruined the potatoes, I would have said, how? I've never mixed potatoes before. Well, you're not supposed to mix them. They're called mashed potatoes, Kevin. You mash them. They're not called mixed potatoes. I didn't know. And so sometimes I feel like we can be so harsh on the culture around us that just does not know. They don't know. But when they do know, there's a reason. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, the law, to bring about my death, the end of myself, to realize this isn't working. So that the commandment, uh, excuse me, so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. And most people I know that aren't following Jesus aren't concerned about his commands. But when we do follow Jesus, we realize that his commands can help us understand the depth of our need for Jesus. And we can rejoice that he's available to us. And that's what 13 begins to show us. The problem isn't in the rumble strip. The problem isn't in the law, the commandment. The problem is in me. It's in us. And so our second point is, I'm not completely good. The law is good, but I'm not completely good. There's a, there's a conflict going on in me. It's unresolved. Well, if I, I said uh, 7 through 13 explains how that's exposed, 14 through 25 is a declaration of what it feels like. And I want to read from a different translation. I want to read from the message translation. It's a paraphrase. Someone asked me, what did you read from? I'm reading from a paraphrase of the second half of Romans, uh, the message by Eugene Peterson. It says this, I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know all God's commands are spiritual, but I am not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself after all. I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary, but I need more. For if I know the law, but I still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I really don't do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. 
Something's gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly, it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can help me do anything for me? Isn't this the real question? Man, if you've, if you've walked with Jesus any length of time, I'm sure you have felt that tension in those verses. It's real. Verse 14 and 15 help us zoom in on this. I kind of think it's part of the key to the whole passage We know the law is spiritual, to go back to my original translation, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. The law is spiritual. It speaks to my spirit. The human human person is, is, uh, you know, it's complicated. He speaks to, to the spirit. We're, we're spiritual in nature. But then he says, but I am unspiritual. I am carnal, literally fleshly. How can I respond to it? I'm sold as a slave to sin. Now this brings us to a problem because in chapter 6, he said he's a slave of righteousness. So the question is, how can one man write in one paragraph that he's a slave of righteousness and a few paragraphs later say, I'm unspiritual, carnal, and a slave to sin? Some people have said, well, Paul's just, that's just Paul. He's Looney Tunes. There's just one more reason I don't understand what he's writing. He's not confused. He is simply describing what happens when a Christian tries to live under the law by themselves, to do it all by themselves. By their, division, by their decision and willpower and determination, tries to do what's right in order to please God. He's living under the law. She's living under the law rather than receiving the righteousness and forgiveness that's in Christ. Paul is just telling us plainly what to expect when we try to live by rules rather than by grace. It leads us this way. Because why? Sin deceives us. It deceived the Apostle Paul and it will deceive us. Some have assumed, based just on these two verses, that Paul was a golfer. I know what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do. So I want to use my own backswing as an illustration of living in the spirit versus living in the flesh, because my backswing is so bad. How many golfers in the room? Just a quick show of hands. Yeah, all seven of us. So this is going to go over well. Okay, so this is my driver. Drivers are used to hit the ball a real long way um, if, you, if you hit it well. Life um, in the, the life in Christ, in the Spirit, for me is often um, as um, delicate as my golf swing because so much can happen between this moment when you go back and right here, when you go forward. If you've played golf, you know what can happen. So in the Christian life, you can, you can go to address the ball and say, I'm going to live by the Spirit. 
I'm going to keep my arm in. I'm going to keep my head down. I'm going to live freely. I'm going to live lightly. It's all going to be great. And I get right here. And at that moment, everything changes. And I said, no, I'm going to live by the flesh. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take charge. I'm going to kill the ball. I'm going to be the ball. I'm going to, I'm going to crush it. And so by the time I get back down here, my hips are out of place. I top the ball, and it ends up right over there. All right? Now, I'm, I love, I, I enjoy it. I don't want to say love it. You saw how I tried to retrieve that. I don't love it yet, but I like it. I'm really good for 14 holes. It's an 18-hole game, but I'm good to 14 because I've reached that 100-stroke mark by then. The goal of golf is a low score, not a high, not, not many strokes. Because there's so few times where I live by the Spirit here and live by the Spirit here. It's so precarious, it changes in a second. And I can take over my day, my relationships, my outlook, my prayer life. I don't want to wait anymore. I'm going to take charge. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to... I, I'm not going to pray for a month. Make a decision. Hmm. Hmm. Verse 16. And if I do what I do not want to do, I, I agree the law is good. Right? He, he repeats his first point. But I'd say, but I'm not completely good. There's something inside of me. Verse 17, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I know that good itself, <coughs> excuse me, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, but that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. That's what I'm going to do, and I keep on doing it. Now, if I, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Hmm, interesting paragraph, to say the least. There's something, there's something within, within us as a Christian that wants to do good. The Spirit of God has awakened that in us, and we want to do good. We see God's law is holy and righteous, so I want to do it. Excuse me. I want to do it, but there's something in me that doesn't want to do it. <laughs> there's an I and there's a me that stands up and says, no, no, I don't want you to do that. And we have this, this battle. There's an I that wants to do what God wants, right? There's an I in us that doesn't want to do what God doesn't want to do, but there's a me in us that pushes back. We are spirit, soul, body. And the Spirit of God awakens our spirit. That's why Jesus said you must be born again. Your spirit must come alive. It wants to do but sometimes our body does not want to do it. There's an alien power resident within us. Paul calls the flesh. Jesus alluded to this battle in the Sermon on the Mount where he said this, 
If your right hand causes you to stumble or sin, cut it off and throw it away. Radical statement. What is he getting at there? Don't mutilate your body. That would go against other scriptures that say the body is, is a good creation and morally neutral. But what he is saying is that there is something going on inside of us and you need to pay careful attention to it. And don't over-respond. Thank you, sir. Don't over-respond. You know, since David gave me that, I'm really questioning what's in it. Mm. So even Jesus referred to it. Thank you, David. <clears throat> even Jesus refers to this. You need to, you need to pay careful attention because there's, there's a me in you that wants to take charge of the members of your body. Your hand, your feet, your sexual organs, your mind, and do what God doesn't want to do. And how do we cut it off? Well, we'll get to that. We'll see how that happens. Romans chapter 7, verse 21 says, So I find this law, that's not the law, that's a principle. We must find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law, another principle at work in me, waging war against the law, the principle of my mind, making me a prisoner to the principle of sin, of law, of sin at work within me. In other words, I delight in God's law, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me does. And he's saying this battle goes on. And then our third point is, the law is good. I'm not completely good. I need rescue. I need somebody to salvage my backswing. I mean, my, my follow-through. I need some help. In verse 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul says this, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. He delivers us when we trust in him for salvation. He delivers us each step along the way. We need to be in constant dependence upon him. And so when we feel like we're out of control, what do you do? You go over the facts. That's just kind of basic living. Let's go over the facts. We have been justified. We are dead to sin and alive to God. That's why Paul says, consider yourself that way. Tell yourself that's the truth. Push up against your feelings. Our culture says feelings rule the day. And God says, no, I need you to base your life on the facts of what I declare you to be. And live by faith on that. I'm dead to sin and alive to God. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. And what it means is, and I'll use my golf game as an illustration, if I'm living my life and I'm trying to perform and I'm all grace-based here and all law-based here, I'm going to just really be frustrated. And when I miss the ball and top the ball and I'm not having any fun, there's a few things, other things you can do with the golf club. You can bang it on the ground and blame the equipment. You can bang yourself with it and blame the player. You can throw it into the water hazard and have some fun. And this is what I see Christians do with their life. 
They beat themselves up when they live by the rules and fail, 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 rather than turn to Jesus. Rehearse the facts. So I top the ball. Whoop-de-doo. All right? Well, there's people around me watching. We play to an audience of one. And so you can play a bad game of golf and have a great day at golf. And you can play a... You not, this is where the analogy breaks down, but you could live the Christian life and, and take matters into your own hands and just stop right mid-swing and go, I'm sorry, Lord. I took over that. And I just, I'm just going to apologize and I'm going to receive forgiveness and I'm going to go over the facts. You're in charge. I'm not. You're, it's your timetable, not mine. I need your strength. I need your patience. I need your goodness. I need your kindness, not mine. So I, I'm, I'm sorry. And you can keep moving. You don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to try to add to the payment for your sin when Jesus paid for it all. You don't have to lash yourself for failure. You don't have to blame the equipment. You don't have to blame the company. You can just own it, recover, and keep moving. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want to end with Jesus' invitation for us to come to him. It's out of Matthew's gospel. Again, I'm going to read it from a paraphrase of the message. I love these verses because I am so prone to try to run my life my way rather than rest in his life and enjoy what he has. I don't know why. Because every time I live his way, I have his strength and I see his glory and hopefully other people do and I'm at peace and I have rest and there is joy. So why would I abandon that for self-effort, self-glory, sneaky sins? I don't know, but I do it. So his invitation to come to him may be for you just to, to put down the performance and rest. Here's what it says. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I'm not going to put anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That is so beautiful. Some of you are so tired. Some of you are completely worn out. Some of you have already burned out on religion. Come to Jesus. Find rest in him. He has the victory. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for our morning. 
Thank you for your word and the truth in it. It helps us understand who you are and who we are. And we say, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who rescues us through Jesus Christ. I pray for those in the room that are tired and worn out and burned out, that they would come to you right now and lay down their victories and their failures and rest solely in you. I pray for those that need to trust you anew today, that they would. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.